again, thank you much for being here this morning. We're, we're excited to go into God's Word. As always, this week we're going to be talking in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be talking about a homecoming. You know, Thomas Wolfe wrote a novel. It's entitled, You Can't Go Home Again. Now, this book was about a man by the name of George Weber. Now, George was an author who had written a successful book about his hometown. And when he returns home, you know, he expects a hero's welcome because it was a, you know, it was a bestseller. But when he returns home, instead, he's driven out of town uh, by his own family and his friends. They felt betrayed by what he'd written about them in the book. <laughs> you know, Weber's, he's shaken to the core at uh, this reactions, and he just leaves his hometown behind and uh, sets out to discover himself, and he realizes that those who know you best tend to respect you the least. Well, in today, our text, we're going to find Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. This is the second time he's returned home after he began his ministry. You know, um, the first time he went, it did not go very well, and... Um, but this time, Jesus is somewhat of a celebrity, right? I mean, he's been preaching out there in the ministry. He's been healing the sick. He's been laying, calling the, the, having the, the lame to walk, the blind to see. He's risen the dead. Matter of fact, after this occasion, he just finished doing that. Um, so he kind of expected, perhaps, well, not him, uh, you would expect, uh, to see a different response, that the people would be excited. Well, let's look at a little background here. Um, well, before we do that, let's have a word of prayers begin, and then we'll we'll dig in a little deeper into the word. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity we have that we can come and we can worship you through reading your word. I pray, Lord, you'd help us now as we understand your word. Help us, Lord, to glean some knowledge from this so that we might be able to be better Christians in the face of the world that we're in today. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Again, thank you for your time and your attention. So let's talk a little about the town of Nazareth. You know, well, where is it? Well, it's about 25 miles away from Capernaum. Now, you know, Jesus set his ministry up to be, to he, he sprung out of Capernaum because Capernaum was a good-sized town. Nazareth, on the other hand, is a little teeny town. Uh, it's west from the north tip of the Sea of Galilee and directly west and directly south. Uh, what type of town is it? You know, it's one of those common, small, ancient villages, really, that was about 60 acres wide on a rocky hillside on a road that went nowhere. Uh, at best guess, there was maybe 500 residents in the town. Now, Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It is never mentioned, mentioned in the Jewish Mishnah, never mentioned in the Jewish Talmud, never mentioned by Josephus who's the historian, and no church ever appeared there until after the 4th century A.D. So it was not a well-known, it was just a common village that not much happened in there, right? Uh, now, Jesus' relationship to these folks in the town, these people know him. He had relatives there, no doubt, not just his brothers and sisters and them, but I would imagine aunts and uncles and cousins. And I mean, I imagine that was a pretty much a, some of the people I know goes to family churches. 
And then the family churches that everybody knows everybody because everybody's related to everybody. Um, Branch Chapel's not exactly like that. That church has a variety, of, but it does have multiple families in that church. And a lot of the people are related to other people. And sometimes I don't even know the relationship. And I say, huh, you know, I didn't know that. But but the point is, it's still the, the, the town of Nazareth was very much a family, small family center. And everybody knew everybody. Remember, Jesus grew up there for 30 years in this town of about 500 people. So everybody knew him. I mean, everybody knew him. Uh, a year earlier, you know, he had visited and they tried to kill him. Clearly not the uh, response that Jesus would have expected. So now let's get to today's uh, Bible scripture and see what it says. In verse 1 of chapter Mark chapter 6 is where we are. And in verse 1, he says, And he went out from thence and came into his own country. So the first part says he went out from thence. He just left Capernaum, where he had been ministering in the prior chapter. What had he done there? Well, two major things, really. One thing was he had just raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter from the dead. I mean, that's pretty significant. He also healed the woman who had a bleeding problem for over 12 years. You remember the story about her, how she just went and touched the hem of his garment and was was healed, and Jesus said, who touched me? Remember this story? This has just happened before he went to Nazareth. And all the people in that town were astonished. In Capernaum, they were astonished by Jesus uh, because of those directly related to those two miracles. Overall, by the way, this is how the people in Galilee received Jesus. They were amazed by him. They were astonished by him. Now, let me say, astonishment does not equal faith. See, Without faith, there is no repentance. And without repentance, there is no salvation. So astonishment on the part of these people, amazement on the part of these people, did not equal faith. Uh, this crowd in Calpurnium was a curious crowd. I mean, they simply came to see the miracles. And, of course, there was many people who wanted to be healed physically, but not spiritually. They were astounded by his teaching. So some came just because they wanted to hear him teach and hear what he had to say. They did not necessarily uh, believe everything he said. Interesting enough, large crowds awaited him everywhere he went. This is a this is an example. We'll give you an example of what we just talked about with the Capernia, with the, the woman with the blood, Mark 5. 30 through 31, which is previously that we don't, not part of our lesson today, is that, and Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press, the, the big throng of people, and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? So clearly there was large, large crowds that followed Jesus. The next part of that verse said, not only did it says, uh, and he went out from thence, it says, and he came into his own country. So now we see, we're going to contrast this. All these things he just got through doing, he just came out of that, and he went into his own country. And it says, so he left this massive crowd and traveled back to Nazareth. <clears throat> this is his second trip home, as we said. Let's look a little bit about that first trip <clears throat> as a background. Let's take a look at that visit. Luke 4, 16 through 30. Luke 4, 16 through 30. I'll give you just a moment if you want to look at the scripture. 
Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, just to kind of in passing, but <clears throat> but I want to make sure I read it. Luke 4, 16-37, And he came to Nazareth, and when he had been brought up, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the books of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are, that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he, being Jesus, closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And all eyes of them were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaia, also do here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Isaiah, Elijah, when the heavens were shut up, and up, up three years and six months, when the great famine was throughout the land. But none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Seraphath, the city of Sidon, unto the woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, save Naaman, the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these words, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him into the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. We see Jesus' first visit back to Nazareth did not go well. His message was this, the Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled in me. I am the Messiah. Some people say, well, Jesus never said he was the Messiah. That's not true. <laughs> Here it clearly says he's the Messiah. And now he says to these people in Nazareth, you, the town folks of Nazareth, want me to do great things that you've heard me do in other places, but I cannot because of your unbelief. He gave me two examples. And the word of God to illustrate his point, Elijah. Elijah was sent to the widow in another country to sustain him. Why? Because there was no faith the people in Israel. Elisha healed Naaman, the Syrian leper, whereas there's many of lepers in the nation of Israel. Why? Because they didn't have any faith. Uh, so he told the people of Nazareth, he says, I can't do what you asked me to do because you don't have any faith. Uh, it says there that they rose up. They were furious that he didn't do the works, that he refused to do, to show them the tricks, the magic. And so it said they thrust him out of the city. They grabbed him by force. They drug him out of the city to a cliff to throw him off and kill him. Jesus' power is once again shown, though, in this situation because it says as he passed through their midst unharmed. Now, some people say, well, they just changed their mind. That's not what it says. This crowd would not have suddenly changed their heart. <laughs> no, this was a miraculous delivery from certain death. See, Jesus was now was going to give his hometown one more chance to believe, even after they attempted to kill him. Some people said, I ain't going back there again. <laughs> but not Jesus. Maybe the things that they heard about him this time would change their minds and they would believe what he had told them the last time he spoke to them. Maybe this time they would believe that what he had said, he had evidence to show it, and so maybe they would believe it. So now we're in the verse part, second part of that verse 1. 
and his disciples followed him. Now, this time in Nazareth, Jesus took his disciples. Now, they would have been with him already because he raised Jared's daughter. And this was the next trip that he took after this event. So they actually with him. And it says they really played no role in the visit. We don't see them doing anything. Uh, simply that they accompanied him. Uh, it appears that Jesus wanted them to see what awaited them in their own hometowns as he sent them out to minister in his own. See, Jesus does, gives us examples. God's word gives us examples of things that we can experience in our life because uh, 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 he did it. He wants us to see that he was tempted like we are and how we should handle those events. Matthew 10, 16-25 says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, but be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This is what his message was to his disciples. Uh, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given unto you in that same hour what ye shall say. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of our Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up brother to death, and father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they have persecuted you in this city, flee you into another, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the city of Israel, of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Listen to this. It is not enough for the disciple that he be his master. And the servant as his Lord, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? See, Jesus told his disciples, listen, you're going to experience persecution beyond all measure because they persecuted me. Not because of you, because of me. And so Jesus wanted to take his disciples so that they could see this. Verse 2, and when the Sabbath was come, when the Sabbath day was come, there appeared to be no crowds. Interesting. It didn't say that when Jesus went, it said Jesus went and took his disciples. And then it says, and then, and when. So, I mean, how long had he been there? There was no parades. There was no interest. There seems no interest at all. Oh, Jesus is coming. All right. Everywhere else he's met with, with big throngs of crowds and massed upon him. He goes to Nazareth. Nobody. Nobody shows up. Uh, it's unsure how many days he actually sat there before the Sabbath. It appears that not much happened during that time period. It merely states, and when the Sabbath day was come. So nothing happened until the Sabbath day. And then it says he began to teach in the synagogues. You know, as is custom, a visiting rabbi or teacher that came into the town, they would always ask him to speak. And although these were formal informal events, usually any male could desiring to speak could do so. Um, now understand. These people that may not have liked Jesus recognized that he was a rabbi, a teacher, even if they didn't believe in what he said. Uh, now, perhaps they had heard these great messages, you know, of Jesus, how powerful miracles, and they were just curious to see if he had changed his story any from the first time that he was there. Remember, he'd already presented them one time, so they wanted to see. It appears, by the way, that this time there was no opposition in allowing him to speak. So they were curious to hear him speak. No one said, no, he can't speak. He blasted me last time. It seems that they somewhat 
accepted that he is popular, that he has a message, and that people are accepting the message. And so maybe I want to listen to him again and see maybe if he's saying things now that he didn't say before. You know, we don't have, they didn't have radio and TV and internet services. So the last time many of them heard him was there. It says in verse 2, see, and many hearing him were astonished. Now, we don't know what message he said because the Mark doesn't record it. Um, we only know that the people that heard him speak were astonished. Interesting enough, there's a the Greek word that was used for astonished is, and I'm not good at Greek, so I will stumble over this, but you can get the understanding. It's called ekplesio. Ekplesio. There's a this is a really strong verb. Plesio means to strike, to smite, to blast, and in a positive form to be hit or blasted. And when you put the the prefix ek in front of it to make it ekplesio, you intensify the word. So John MacArthur says it this way: He blew their minds. They were just blown away by his teaching. He astonished them. And many hearing him were astonished. They were just blown away. Now, Scripture tells us his teaching in many ways. Describes his teaching in many ways. They describe his teaching as one authoritative. Matthew 7, 28-9 says, And it came to pass when Jesus said, Enter these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as scribes. So we see the Scripture describes Jesus' teaching as authoritative. It also describes Jesus' teaching as knowledgeable. John 5, 15-16 says, And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but he that sent me. So we see he's not only authoritative, but they also recognize his teaching as knowledgeable. In Luke 4, 32, he's recognized his teaching recognized as powerful. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his words was with power. And the fourth thing the Bible talks about when Jesus is preaching, his teaching is that it's unmatched. In verse John 7, 45-46 says, And then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? And the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. See, Jesus' teaching was authoritative, knowledgeable, powerful, and unmatched. And so it's not surprising that the people would say they were blown away at his hearing, at the astonished at his hearing. So we see second part of that verse says, and saying, but why were these people astonished? Okay, we understand that he, is, he can blow you away, but why were these people blown away with his teaching? And it says in the last, last part of this verse, why? Saying, from whence hath this man these things? And what no wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? See, these folks were not astonished because of Jesus' words or his wonders or his message. They were astonished because of their unbelief. You know, faith is powerful. But unbelief is powerful also. Think about it a moment. Unbelief is a great force. Uh, the power of unbelief is so great that it extended throughout all eternity. It has massive force. Let me just give you a few examples. Eve 
Clearly, Eve exercised unbelief of the word and it brought the entire human race into a curse. Noah, because the people, the unbelievers of the world, brought the flood that destroyed everyone except for Noah, his wife, and his, his, their, his wife and three sons and their wife. We see Israel in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Everyone except for two people under the age of 40 died in the wilderness. We see Aaron, when Aaron agreed to create the calf, 3,000 people died because of the unbelief. We see Moses himself because he unbelief, because when he struck the rock, did not give God the glory, he was kept out of the promised land. We see, remember the story of Achan and his unbelief resulting in disobedience. His entire family was executed. Judas, of course, betrayal of Jesus led to his own suicide and its everlasting punishment. We see the scribes and Pharisees were unbelievers to the very end. And because of that, they died in their sins. They forfeited heaven and they gained hell. What does the Bible say about unbelief? John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Listen to this. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. John 8, 21. Then said Jesus again to them, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sin. Whether I go, ye cannot come. And I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sin, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Second Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. Because they received not the love of God, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusions that they should believe a lie. That they should they should all that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Romans eleven, twenty through twenty one. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also not spare thee. And then finally, Revelations 21.8. But the fearful, and unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and the whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. See, the results of this mighty force of unbelief is it brought the curse to the whole human race. It drowned all humanity. It activates the judgment of God. It brings about forfeiture of eternal life. It brings eternal judgment. And in verse 2D of this passage today, this is in the gospel, puts on display the power of unbelief. Nothing has changed with their attitude except that at this time, they don't try to kill him. See, they wondered about the source and the nature of his wisdom. Uh, that his message was unique, just like before. And now we know that they should have known his wisdom because we know Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His wisdom comes from God. These would do wise to remember the fact, and when they would have accepted his truth, that they remember that his wisdom comes from the Lord. He fears the Lord. They could not deny his mighty works. But see, Jesus didn't fit into the mold of the Messiah. So in these next verses, we're going to see uh, some of their stumbling blocks of their faith. Unbelief obscures the obvious, doesn't it? They were more concerned about where he came from than about what it was. 
They were focused on the fact that he had not been trained for normal rabbinical training. Where did these come from? There's only one sensible answer to where all this came from. It came from God. He already told them before he was the Messiah. He's the one who has come to fulfill the prophecy, right? You sort of fulfilled in your presence. There's no need for such silly questions. This is obviously from God. So let's look at verse 3. Here's their, their argument with him. Is not this the carpenter? Now, first of all, this is proof that Jesus was a carpenter by trade, probably up until the time of his ministry. Somebody say, well, yeah, he was a carpenter. Jewish laws requires a father to do four things for his firstborn son. First of all, circumcise him on the eighth day, redeem him 40 days, teach him the law. This is up until he's 12 or 13 when he would answer for himself, and then to teach him a trade so that he could be in his way. So we knew him to be a carpenter. This is an honorable, but it's an ordinary trade. Note number two, unbelief not only obscures the obvious, it elevates the irrelevant. You know, people start talking about, they couldn't focus on his power. They couldn't focus on his validated teaching. They had already rejected him wholesale before he even spoke a word. Now they attack him by attacking his family. He comes from a well-known local family, you know, very common people. He comes from an obscure town, an obscured family. He can't possibly be who he says he is. Uh, they speak with disdain. Is not this the carpenter? Not a rabbi, not a clergyman, not a Pharisee, not a scribe, not a local synagogue leader, a ruler. He's a carpenter for all, for goodness sakes. He's a carpenter. That's what they're basically saying. Then they say, the son of Mary. Now this phrase is meant to slander Jesus, of course. Because uh, the proper description would be he's the son of Joseph. I mean, he knew his father in the town. I mean, you know, he's believed, many believe, I believe, that he's dead at this time. And if it, But now it could have meant that, you know, because Joseph was dead, therefore mother was Mary, so therefore they just related to the mother of Mary because he lives in the town. But it probably brought the question about Jesus' legitimate birth. You know, it's a small town, a small town's gossip. John 8, 41 Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders, and they say, Ye do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. That's slander. Uh, that Mary, because Joseph was not the father of her baby. Jesus was an illegitimate son. His father was unknown. So they said, Not only are you a carpenter, but you're an illegitimate son. Verse 3. C. The brothers of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon are not and not his sisters here with us? It is clear that Mary did not remain a virgin, as some would teach, because she had a lot of children. Uh, four brothers are mentioned by name. James, who we know uh, became a believer. All these became believers after the resurrection. But James became a leader and, and became a, the, the leader of the church at, uh, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he actually wrote the book of John, James. Jude, Judah, a nun Jude, was a believer and wrote the uh, book of Jude. Uh, Josie name is mentioned several times in race of reference to Mary and her sons, and so we know that he was there among the saints. Simon is believed to have taken over the Jerusalem church after the death of James. So obviously these four brothers he mentioned, they were not believers at that time, but they believe. We know that because in John 7, 35, it says his brethren therefore said unto him, they came and met with him, yelled, the one to meet with him, his brethren said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works that thou doest. 
For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world, for neither did his brethren believe in him. For neither did his brethren believe in him. See, they were ridiculing Jesus in John 7. So we know they at the time did not believe in him. Acts 1.14, though, says, These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So we see after the death of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, we see here that they all were uh, in one accord with the disciples. Jesus also had sisters that said, Now we're unclear how many, but he did have them, and they were probably married to men in the town. Uh, the last part of that verse, and they were offended at him. Everyone there was offended. The uh, no, Another character unbelief is an assault on the messenger. The great word here for offended is scandalizio. Now, that's clearly where we get the Greek word scandalized or stumble. So the town folks felt scandalized by him. They felt he brought shame to their little small village. It was an absolute blasphemy in their minds that he would claim to be the son of God. And here he was out there bragging and he's from Nazareth and people say, oh, you got that blasphemer from there. And probably other people have probably had when they come in contact with them said, oh yeah, that's where that crazy man's from. See, unbelief causes one to stumble from the truth. You know, we will be offended because of our faith and trust in God. We will be offended because of that. John 15, 18 says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would have loved his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. See, we will offend people because of the word of God. We can think of that today in today's society. Right is wrong is wrong is right. We say the truth. and Folks, I'm going to tell you one day, there's coming a day soon where they're going to be shutting church doors down. They're going to be calling us hate mongers because we proclaim the truth of the word. We can't be anything you want to be. You can't do opposite. You can't do these different lifestyles that are anti-biblical because they're wrong. And we're saying they're wrong whether we become hate mongers. And because we're hate mongers, one day you see soon in America, they'll be closing our church doors, calling us organization hate organizations. Let's go to verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own household. See, if Joseph was dead, then the only person in that household who believed in Jesus was Mary, his mother. It's clear that his brothers and his sisters at this point did not believe until after the resurrection. Now, interesting, he was believed to be a prophet outside of town. You can do a search for the word prophet. And you'll see Jesus is referred to many, many times as a prophet. So now the people believed him to be a prophet. Uh, and a prophet is someone who spoke for God. But see, he said, not in his own hometown. He said, yes, people believe me to be a prophet, but not in my own hometown. He had no honor whatsoever as a prophet. They thought he was a man who lost his mind. Animity, uh, animosity in his own hometown, and they attacked him. His response was, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his own relatives, and even in his own household. Let's look at verse 5. And he could there do no mighty works, save the laying on hands on a few sick folks and healed them. Unbelief 
spurns the supernatural. See, was there a power problem? Did Jesus not have the power? No, Jesus had the power to do anything. But it's a purpose problem. The purpose for miracles were to attest to the truth, right? If you reject the truth, there's no need for miracles. If you don't believe in the Bible, there's really no need for us to talk with you. If you can't believe the Word of God, in the beginning, God. If you don't believe in God, it's a waste of our time. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in if you don't have faith, there's no reason for having miracles. If you reject the truth, there's no need for miracles. See, this is the ultimate disaster of unbelief. It literally shuts a person off from God. You know, how foolish is it to be into unbelief? It's unbelief chooses, unbelievers choose hell. Unbelief chooses Satan. Unbelief chooses sin. Unbelief chooses to go alone, along my way, alone in my way, the kingdom of darkness, with no divine intervention. Is that really what you want, unbelief? Unbelief spurns the supernatural. It shuts God out. Now, unbelievers don't want to be blessed by spiritual blessings. They don't want love, joy, peace, tenderness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Believers don't want prayers answered. They don't want divine intervention in their life, supernatural wisdom, supernatural direction, hope, the promise of heaven, a peak that passes understanding. Unbelievers don't want those things. Then you spurn God and you'll not get them. I would remind you that we serve a sovereign God. You know, he can do anything that he pleases. He can do anything he pleases to whomever he pleases. So faith or lack thereof does not pose a problem for God. But in this case, Jesus refused to cast his pearls before the swine. They refused the message, thus they forfeited the miracles. See, in this situation, Jesus came to perform miracles not for the sake of performing miracles, but was to prove that he was who he said he was. Well, these people had no faith he was who he said he was. So they would they could see the miracles that were performed, but they ignored them. Verse 6 says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled. Jesus marveled. He went around about the villages teaching. Jesus marveled. The word marveled means to stand in wonder and amazement. Jesus said to have marveled only twice in the Bible. Both times he marveled over faith. The first one was in the was the marvel of the great the faith of the centurion remember jesus talking about the centurion and he said i have not seen any faith anywhere in all of israel as this faith of the centurion and here jesus marvels at the lack of faith among his own people jesus was amazed he was amazed that these people heard the truth saw the truth and still turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to the truth as a result, he left Nazareth, and there's no record that he ever returned. See, their rejection of Jesus was total. And therefore, he abandoned them for their choices. That's what the Lord does. He sends out a call for people to believe the gospel and to be saved. And when people reject the truth of the gospel and the message of salvation through Jesus, there is no more hope for them. Now, he might call them again, and he might not. Regardless, there will come a point where the Lord will call them no more, and they'll be abandoned for their choices. 
So let's look at a few things as we close on this. Jesus' truth was clear and factual, but the people refused to accept it. In our world today, you know, we see the same thing. His word and his truth is coming more and more into place that there's really no excuse for not seeing what is about to be played out in the front of our eyes in this world. The Bible's clear. Yet, are we ashamed of Jesus? Are we willing to stand with him even though no one may there may listen? Facts don't matter anymore. We see that in the news all the time. We see the news media distorts the truth. We see that when they reveal that these are lies, no big deal. See, we live in that time. Is Jesus not doing great work in our lives, in our church, in our community? Is he not doing it because of our unbelief? Do we believe? If we don't believe, he can't do mighty works. That's what he said. Because of their unbelief, he could not do mighty works. You know, uh, I will tell you that it, if you see a church that's growing, you know, at Branch Chapel, we'll just talk a moment about us. We can see times when our church grows and people get saved and miracles because salvation is the greatest miracle of all. To take a poor lost sinner that has no hope, you understand, no hope at all, and to snatch their hopelessness out of hell and give them hope, give them faith, give them an eternal destiny, make them a son of the king of glory. That's a miracle. To do that when we didn't deserve it is even more of a miracle. So God saves, and we see God's saving power. And then something happens, and the faucet is shut, and no more. You see no more. No more people getting saved. You don't see the flow. What happened? The Bible tells us here, and Jesus tells us, things don't happen because of unbelief. See, unbelief, as we saw, shuts down the supernatural. If your church today is not having people saved, aren't seeing miracles happening in the life, aren't seeing people healed of their diseases and their sicknesses, is it because you shut down the sovereign power of God through unbelief? See, God can do anything if we believe him. I say to you today, Jesus can truly be amazed by you. He was amazed twice. One for strong faith and one for lack of faith. What is Jesus to you? Will he be amazed by your faith? Or will he be amazed by your unbelief? Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have that we can come. We can open your word. I pray, Lord, right now that you would help me. Lord, help my unbelief. Don't let your power in my life be limited by my unbelief. I pray, Lord, forgiveness for my sins and my weaknesses that prevents you from doing the work that you can do in my life, in our church, in our community, because of our faith in you. Let us not shut the, 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 the doors of heaven because of our unbelief. I pray this in the name of the powerful Son of God, who is the Lamb of God who died for my sins, and the sins of the world, whether they accept it or not.
Be amazed, Lord, by my work because of your work and my faith. I pray for everyone around the world where the gospel is preached today that your power be unhindered because of their faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time and your attention, and we look to see you next week.